0: Hello again and welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Well, today's lecture, we actually start a series of four lectures, uh, four lectures on environmental chemicals and case studies associated with particular sites. What we'll try to do is use these case studies as, uh, I guess, catalysts uh, to learn a little bit more about or get a little deeper into some of the approaches to understanding the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls, the approach that we've taken here in principles of environmental toxicology. Unfortunately, we can't do much more than uh, perhaps a tourist uh, approach to some of these sites because they are, in fact, extraordinarily complex. Uh, for example, a couple of the case studies we talk about today are involved uh, multi-decade uh, type environmental cleanups, the risk assessment, uh, the amount of uh, resources uh, exceed the billions of dollars. Uh, I have, in fact, on our uh, course module website uh, directed you to some of the regulatory science uh, uh, sites that actually do have all of the risk evaluation, the data reports, uh, the monumental uh, resource base that's uh, appropriate to these highly risk uh, uh, deemed situations in terms of receptors and potential toxicosis from these chemical releases. What we'll try to do in all four of these lectures is uh, give you somewhat of a a model in terms of the types of approaches you should be taking on your case studies that you will produce as a part of the course requirements in Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Uh, To do that, you're going to need to have an in-depth analysis uh, far beyond what we can deal with in uh, a lecture, but at least it will sensitize you to the diversity and uh, the different uh, sorts of cases and sites out there that present uh, real, and in some cases, uh, present danger uh, to uh, the local environment and sometimes the local population. Our learning objectives, what we'll try to do here, is have you understand the major environmental chemicals and some of the major groups of environmental chemicals of concern. We'll do that by going through some regulatory lists. These are U.S. regulatory lists, but uh, chemicals don't know boundaries, and in a certain sense, uh, scientists that do the reviews are international, and so there is good uh, harmonization, if you will, of some of these lists of chemicals of concern. Uh, especially chemicals like the persistent bioaccumulative or toxic chemicals uh, that we'll talk about. We'll try to have you be able to describe some of these lists and the categories of environmental chemicals. We've introduced some of these concepts uh, in in the introductory lectures of principles of environmental toxicology, and this is just a continuation of uh, that subject matter. We'll then start dropping into some case studies. And we'll try to use these case studies, once again, to focus in on the particular concern there. And we'll use it as a, as a teaching moment, if you will, uh, in terms of bringing to bear some of the uh, background uh, risk analysis data that might be applicable to the site. What are the motivations, the movers, uh, in terms of risk mitigation? Uh, for example, is there a potential for a contaminant to mobilize offsite? We'll also, during the course of uh, these four lectures, talk about sites from a historical perspective. Uh, Several of the sites we will have uh, examined will be sites that, uh, in history and mostly in recent history, uh, actually have been cleaned up. And in some cases, we've learned uh, what to do in terms of our general approach to these complex ecosystems that are contaminated. And more importantly, we've in several cases learned what not to do in terms of uh, trying to manage or trying to understand uh, this contaminated environment. Today, though, we're going to use a case study to explore the relationship between lead pollution and children's blood lead levels in the Bunker Hill Superfund site, and this is in northern Idaho. Uh, This is somewhat in our backyard here at the University of Idaho, about 70, 80 miles north of here. Uh, It, in fact, is one of the most complex uh, metal-contaminated sites in the United States. It's been undergoing a fairly high level of cleanup and risk mitigation over the past several decades, and we'll talk about some of the data and some of the approaches to mitigating and minimizing the potential impact, especially as we focus on children's blood lead levels. We'll use another case study to explore another inorganic and metals uh, mining associated uh, uh, problem in Butte, Montana, and this is referred to as the Berkeley Pit. Uh, The Berkeley Pit is often regarded as the largest contaminated water body in the United States. Uh, This, again, is a mining uh, byproduct. Uh, This is water that has flooded uh, a uh, um, decades-old copper mining pit. And we'll, we'll talk about what happens when, in fact, we have these pits and we start initiating what we have discussed as acid mine drainage. We'll finalize today's lecture with a very, very brief case study. We'll jump internationally here, and this is uh, a site in Cape Town, South Africa. We will still maintain the theme of inorganic pollutants, and this particular case uh, had to do with an industrial sulfur fire. Uh, this is an outside fire of a mound of uh, sulfur that did burn. Uh, the The combustion products uh, produced tremendous amounts of sulfur dioxide and uh, highly toxic uh, uh, plume that in fact did lead to the deaths of some nearby residents in this particular site. And so we'll take uh, a trip uh, here. Uh, I'll also introduce the fact that uh, for these case studies, uh, these are for the most part, several of these are, are my own personal videos. Uh, so apologies to you in terms of the, perhaps the lack of professionalism in editing and sound levels and, and uh, the jitteriness of the, of the uh, camera. Uh, this is what happens when you have a professor that goes on vacation and takes his video camera with, you, with him and, and uh, perhaps uh, tortures his family by uh, stopping in to visit uh, contaminated hazardous waste sites. But with that, uh, we need to go back and take a look at some categories and uh, how we've uh, referred to environmental chemicals. Recalling from our first and second lecture, you you will remember that we can refer to chemicals by their type, uh, such as heavy metals, uh, pesticides, uh, solvents. We can also refer to them by their physical properties. We introduce the concepts of DNAPLs or dense non-aqueous phase liquids. You have heard me also refer to VOCs or volatile organic compounds. We can also refer to them in their regulatory context, like RCRA characteristic wastes, uh, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. This is a hazardous waste management law. There are specific characteristic wastes uh, according to that law. Those wastes we'll talk about in our environmental law lecture. We can also refer to them by some of their characteristics, such as PBT or persistent Biocumulative and toxic, and these are uh, the bad boys, bad girls of chemistry. These are the chemicals uh, sometimes used in uh, industrial process, sometimes processes byproducts, such as the combustion of coal, uh, releasing mercury into the atmosphere. We'll talk about PBTs as well. We can also classify environmental chemicals via regulatory or other lists. Uh, We'll refer to some, for instance, in in, uh, some regulations like the Clean Water Act as priority pollutants. These are actual lists. Uh, There are some informal lists that you might see if you run around the Internet or other resources, references, for example, to the Dirty Dozen. Uh, Dirty Dozen were a list of 12 particularly toxic and problematic pesticides that activist groups and environmental scientists uh, were doing their best in the 70s and 80s to get them uh, off the market and out of use because of their persistence and their acute toxicity. Uh, The Dirty Dozen, to a large degree, have been eliminated from commercial use in the United States. Uh, CERCLA hazardous substances is another category and in fact CERCLA which is the Superfund authorizing body of law this is to manage historical or abandoned waste sites so you'll hear me refer to as Superfund sites these are ones that uh, the taxpayers uh, and tax uh, uh, taxed industries are actually paying for in terms of their cleanup this is these are billion-dollar level cleanups of very complex contaminated sites But CERCLA has uh, a comment uh, in the body of law referring to hazardous substances where, in fact, CERCLA incorporates the lists from other uh, bodies of environmental law, like RCRA, into that particular law itself. And we'll talk about that in the overlap between CERCLA hazardous substances, these substances by reference to other lists and other laws. We can also refer to environmental chemicals uh, from their source, or their pathway, or their toxic endpoint. And you've heard us refer to as fungal mycot- mycotoxins, uh, snake, venoms, air pollutants. All of those labels are part of the liturgy of environmental toxicology. Well, in priority pollutants, uh, we'll, let's explore this a little bit better. This is a group of toxic chemicals or classes of compounds. Uh, they're listed under what's referred to as 307A1 of the Clean Water Act. Uh, this came to us in 1977. This list was established for the purposes of providing some guidelines for regulating industrial effluent discharge. These are these NPDES permits, uh, these permits to pollute uh, that we use. And the idea is that this is a list. It's a modifiable list. Compounds can be added, uh, rarely taken off. Uh, And uh, as new techniques in synthesis or uh, industrial byproducts uh, actually start producing new chemicals, So this list is a uh, dynamic list. i give you some links on the uh, course website to take a look at the variety of chemicals on there. To give you a sense, this is just a short list of some of the chemicals that appear on the Clean Water Act Priority Pollutants list. And... We'll go through some of these, antimony, thallium, asbestos, acrylonitrile, carbon tetrachloride. And then we drop down nitrobenzene and mercury, chrysine, endosulfan sulfate, uh, which is a pesticide, insecticide, chlorophenol, and PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls. And so this is a very diverse list of some of the major chemicals of concern in terms of Clean Water Act discharges. They are going to be regulated very tightly in terms of the ability of an industry or a point source that is regulated under the Clean Water Act, and we'll discuss those sorts of sources that are regulated in our environmental law session here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology. But it gives you an idea of the diversity of chemicals, uh, and I believe it's uh, about 80, uh, maybe even 100 by now, uh, chemicals on the priority pollutants list. There's another category, and this is an EPA category, and this is conditioned on their behaviors uh, in the environment. They're called PBTs, or persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic. Um, This only amounts to a couple dozen. These are the heavy hitters, the ones of great environmental concern. Uh, There's many toxic chemicals, but the fact that these uh, persist in the environment, and we talked about DDT and PCBs, for example, Uh, the fact that they can bioaccumulate, and typically they bioaccumulate because they are lipophilic chemicals. And so their long-lastingness, the fact that they can multiply in terms of their concentration up the food chain, having dramatic impacts uh, at the higher trophic levels, Uh, this high concentration will yield the potential for reproductive, sometimes developmental, mutagenic, carcinogenic, or neurotoxic effects uh, as it does concentrate up a food chain, so these are of uh, great concern. Some of the chemicals uh, that you will see on the PBT list: um, Aldrin, Dieldrin, insecticides, highly toxic cholinesterase inhibitors, alkyl lead, alkyl lead. Uh, is probably not a part of the reality of most of the students uh, in this course because we got rid of our uh, leaded fuels in the 70s and early 80s. Tetraethyl lead was an anti-knock compound. Uh, As we found out uh, the bad way perhaps, uh, this in fact uh, did lead to a tremendous amount of lead pollution in the United States and globally through the use of leaded fuels benzopyrene, chloridane. Chloridane was a very um, active uh, insecticide that was sometimes used as termiticide. Uh, it was uh, injected into the soil underneath houses. Uh, it was used sometimes uh, in, in livestock operations. Recalling also uh, the uh, DDT and all of the uh, um, uh, types of uh, metabolites associated with uh, DDT. Dioxins and furans, of course, Hexachlorobenzene, mercury in its compounds, myrex, and as, which is a, another agricultural chemical, uh, PCBs, octachlorostyrene, and toxaphene. Uh, these uh, toxaphene is a, a chemical that was used uh, in livestock operations and in other agricultural operations. These are chemicals that have made uh, this uh, somewhat dubious list of PBTs, uh, dubious in the fact uh, that these represent uh, tremendous uh, threats uh, in terms of the environment and its potential impact, toxicological impact, uh, to organisms, uh, including uh, those that make up the human food chain. Well, we're going to start our first uh, case study here, and this is the Bunker Hill Superfund site. This is a, a historical mining operation. i uh, give you some uh, geospatial location here. Uh, this area of interest is here in North Idaho, so that we're only a few hours uh, south of the Canadian border. This is a blow up of this site, and you can see a couple of things. Number one. We have an interstate that runs right through uh, this particular uh, valley called the Silver, referred to as the Silver Valley. Um, So there is uh, commercial access transport. Uh, There are actually uh, several towns, uh, Pinehurst, uh, Kellogg. uh, There's another small town called Smelterville here where this lead uh, smelter operations actually happened. Uh, One of the things you need to notice is that the Bunker Hill Superfund site is actually a box uh, of area. And in terms of the size, it's a fairly substantial box. And so you will hear people that work on this site uh, talk about inside the box. Uh, uh, There's actually uh, several thousand people inside the box, and this is the site that's being cleaned up. The other thing that you need to recognize about the uh, topography is that as a valley, there is... uh, uh, hillsides and water runoff of the hillsides and mining operations and mined lands. Um, water flows uh, to the west uh, down the Coeur River and, in fact, uh, impacts uh, Lake Coeur on its way uh, westward out towards uh, Washington in the ocean. Uh, there are potential deposition zones for many impacted sediments and mine-related, uh, mine-contaminated tailings uh, along this. These what are referred to as the chain lake region. And then there's deposition here in the depositional zone of a deep, deep lake, uh, Lake Coeur d'Alene, uh, which then flows out uh, the full length here out into the Spokane River, uh, Spokane River crossing state lines here beyond Prost Falls, and so you have the ability to transport these heavy metals uh, from one state to another whenever you have interstate transport in the United States. This is typically a larger, more complicated issue in terms of the numbers of agencies, the number of interested stakeholders uh, associated with management of a contaminated area. Now, in terms of its history, it's a former mining and smelting complex. Uh, it was located primarily in Kellogg, Idaho, in the Silver Valley in northern Idaho. This box is 21 square miles uh, in size, so this is a fairly large area. The inside-the-box population is approximately 5,000 people. So this, when we talk about sources, pathways, receptors, in terms of immediate receptors, we have a fairly substantial population in terms of uh, some of the toxic metals like lead uh, that are impacted in this particular site. It's often referred to as one of the largest and most complex abandoned uh, hazardous waste sites in the nation. There are several different uh, industrial processes, including uh, metal smelting going on in this site. There was, for a while, fertilizer manufacturer as well as some other exotic metals operations associated with this site. I've uh, heard a recent statistic that currently it uh, accounts for about 17% of the national Superfund budget in terms of trying to clean up the Bunker Hill site. Uh, this is a particularly large chunk of uh, the nation's resources going to a site uh, that is uh, by many standards highly contaminated. This is a historical photograph uh, taken in the early 80s. This is an airborne uh, photograph. Uh, you can see the topography. Here you can see Interstate 90 that is uh, uh, almost dissecting this particular site. You can see a lot of the industrial operation on one side of the freeway. But you can also, if you look here, see a waterway. And this is the Coeur River. And so you've got water flowing uh, through uh, this uh, mining smelting operation. Now, the smelting operation, because we're dealing with mineral substrates like galena, which is lead sulfide, uh, to get rid of the uh, sulfide, uh, there's a smelting process. This smelting process can produce uh, uh, sulfur dioxides. The sulfur dioxides, the air pollution, the plume, actually uh, uh, did uh, affect a denuding of the forest. And so you can see the scarring uh, associated with dead trees, uh, and lack of vegetation uh, down from the plume of some of the operations. You can also see that the amount of uh, area that's been contaminated by mining tailings and mining operations is pretty significant. Uh, There were dozens of buildings. Uh, This was a large industrial site. Many have said that all uh, a good proportion of the bullets in World War II were actually uh, born here in the Bunker Hill site. Uh, this was an industrial operation producing lead metal. Uh, There are still some active, some small active mining operations. There are still high levels of contamination because of the long history of operations on this site and the lack of uh, attention to any sort of uh, uh, disposal of lead contaminated mining tailings on the site. Mining and smelting operations actually started uh, at the uh, turn of the 1900s. Uh, the primary uh, economic minerals were uh, lead, zinc, cadmium, silver, and gold. Some of the primary contaminants in this ecosystem from mining operations include lead, arsenic, uh, cadmium, and zinc, and they still today are the highly managed uh, constituents of concern in this particular area. The contamination sources include the uh, mine tailings. Uh, tailings are associated uh, with the mining and milling process. What happens in uh, metal mining is uh, heavy metal mining is the ores typically as sulfides, and so it can be sphalerite, which is zinc sulfide, or galena as lead sulfide, are ground up into very, very fine powder, almost a talcum powder, black brown uh, talcum powder. Uh, This powder allows the uh, non target uh, uh, parts of the ore. Uh, to be flushed out as sand in a process called flotation, where they actually float uh, some of these uh, uh, insoluble uh, sulfides up to separate them from the heavier sands in this fine grind. This fine grind actually produces some mine tailings. These are the rejects the lack the, the less concentrated uh, ores. Uh, however, sometimes these tailings, which again are, are powder-like uh, and quite often sandy, do contain uh, fairly high lead concentrations uh, on the order of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 percent in some cases. Uh, Unfortunately, when we start talking about environmental contamination, recall that one percent is a 10,000 part per million concentration, uh, 10,000 milligrams per kilogram of this contaminated tailings, which in essence is soil. So this is highly contaminated, and in in these tailings processes, in the flotation processes, um, they would be mixed with water and pumped out as a slurry, typically stored behind dams because this particular valley had uh, uh, occasional floods over its history. These dams occasionally broke and washed tailings down the entire aquatic ecosystem of the Coeur River. And in a certain sense, the deposited tailings, the deposited contaminated minerals, uh, actually uh, have uh, a pathway approaching uh, about 90 miles of the Chain Lakes and in the deposition zone of Lake Coeur d'Alene. The site uh, not only included the uh, milling operation, but also uh, once the uh, uh, mining uh, concentrates, the the lead and zinc sulfide fines were separated. They were smelted, uh, a high-temperature operation to make lead metal. So there was a smelter complex, Uh, there were some materials uh, and residuals associated with just being involved in a dirty operation, and then the acid mine drainage associated with active mining and some of the uh, air oxidation of some of these uh, sulfide minerals uh, according to the uh, chemical equations that we reviewed already in the course. Now in 1973, a big problem developed, there was a fire. You remember that we didn't have an Environmental Protection Agency until 1970. Uh, There was a Bureau of Mines that did mine safety and oversight. Uh, The particular smelter up there uh, did have some air emissions controls. uh, and They amounted to what was referred to uh, as a bag house essentially pumping the uh, emissions through a cloth bag uh, at high velocity. The cloth bag in the same way a cloth bag in your vacuum cleaner would collect some of the dust and mitigate or minimize the amount of particulates that got through. Uh, Now there was, uh, in 1973, a fire in this bag house. Remember, smelter is a high-temperature operation. Uh, The majority of the bag house uh, actually uh, uh, was uh, inoperable after that. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, some uh, individuals that might be characterized best as environmental criminals associated with the operations of the uh, Bunker Hill smelter Uh, decided that uh, they would continue operations even without the emission controls. Uh, The zinc market at that point in time was very lucrative, and they did some uh, calculations essentially saying they could handle the lawsuits associated with any potential contamination or damages because of the potential profits associated with the zinc market at that time. Uh, They were uh, deadly in their decisions in terms of the uh, area that they contaminated and the children's blood lead levels, as we'll see, of the communities that were downwind from the smelter operations. The smelter and the Bunker Hill Company activities ceased operation in late 1981. uh, Unfortunately, because of perhaps lax uh, regulations, Uh, Bunker Hill Company uh, transferred its assets uh, out of the country before anyone could claim damages, and so this has been a situation that is uh, not a particularly bright spot in our environmental history uh, in terms of individuals making clear choices uh, to contaminate a community and then transferring assets out of the country so that uh, any sort of recovery uh, in terms of economic damages could not be made. So in 1974, so this is uh, one year after the smelter breakdown, um, there was some blood lead monitoring in children in the area. Uh, It was found that 98% of the one to nine-year-old children living within one mile of the smelter had blood lead levels in excess of 40 micrograms per deciliter, 40 micrograms being uh, an indicator of uh, relatively high toxicity. It was uh, Dioscorides, a Greek physician in 200 BC, that uh, in his writings uh, noted that even lead mining in uh, prehistory there uh, in in 200 BC, uh, lead makes the mind uh, give way. And so uh, being uh, a slave in the lead mines, the lead mines were also associated with uh, silver extraction, uh, was, uh, if not a death sentence, uh, a terrible life. This uh, graphic, this thermometer if you will, uh, gives us uh, a linkage between lead toxicity and uh, in terms of blood lead levels and uh, some of the uh, medical uh, clinical observations. Uh, In adults, uh, uh, we have right now the criteria or action level of 10 micrograms per deciliter. I'll talk in a moment of some new data that uh, is pushing that downwards, but in adults, Uh, We observe hypertension in the zone between 10 and 20. Uh, At 40, decreased nerve function, kidney damage. Uh, This is nephrotoxic. Um, uh, Infertility is observed in men. At 100 micrograms per deciliter, adults uh, experience coma and seizures. In children, we know that uh, lead will cross the placenta. Uh, at uh, just about 10 micrograms per deciliter, we can actually observe decreased IQ, hearing, uh, and growth. Uh, In 10 to 20, premature birth, uh, reduced birth weights at uh, 20 micrograms per deciliter, decreased nerve function, uh, and up around between 40 and 100, coma seizure, kidney damage, uh, and anemia. New data uh, over the past five and six years have actually established uh, a a very uh, dramatic fact. This fact and the conclusions uh, that are extraordinarily recent in terms of uh, risk monitoring, risk mitigation, epidemiological analysis is that in terms of blood lead levels in children, there is no safe level. And so there have been proposals to push this uh, action level from 10 to five or to two, uh, the idea being that there is, again, no safe level. Some of the interactions that have been studied have to do with decreased IQ that is very in strong concordance with blood lead levels. Uh, behavior challenges in children exposed to uh, paint uh, with uh, lead in it uh, was very popular at the turn of the 1900s and also leaded gasoline exposure. In terms of uh, lead dust and contaminated sites such as the Bunker Hill site, uh, uh, studies actually at Bunker Hill and other uh, lead-impacted sites have observed that house dust is the primary exposure pathway for children. Uh, Remember that children have more frequent hand-to-mouth activity. If you've ever observed toddlers, what do toddlers do? They toddle around on the floor. Um, They are down there with the dust bunnies, uh, with whatever you track in from the outside. And in a contaminated environment where the soils outside have uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of parts per million of lead, the dust that's blowing around these contaminated zones have uh, hundreds, if not uh, thousands, of parts per million uh, lead as well. The dust that makes up this floor uh, is what their hands are in. Um, They have this frequent hand to mouth activity. In fact, in clinical observations, it's been shown that children will ingest 200 micrograms of soil and dust per day. Uh, 200 micrograms is a visible quantity, Uh, it's uh, about half the size of a dime in terms of if you were to weigh dust. And so, this is a fairly large amount of lead exposure if in fact that, lead do- that dust contains significant amounts of lead. What they find is that dust abatement in houses and in communities is very significant in uh, explaining blood lead levels and so we have observed, and you'll see some data here in a moment, a decrease in blood lead levels with dust and soil mitigation. In terms of the Bunker Hill Superfund site, um, children's blood levels um, in some of the studies in, the 19, uh, in 1974, averages of 70 micrograms per deciliter. In the ambient air, there was as much as 17 micrograms per cubic meter. Some of the yard soils contained uh, 7,400 milligrams per kilogram and house dust levels in terms of milligrams per kilogram at 12,000 parts per million, 12,000 milligrams per kilogram or 1.2% by weight of lead in that dust. The standards uh, that uh, were the cleanup standards uh, for the past uh, decade or so have been that children's blood uh, needed to be uh, at 10 or below Uh, ambient air at 1.5 micrograms per cubic meter yard soil down to 500 to a thousand so that you know again in frame of reference it's not common for for typical soils in in uh, uh, urban or suburban areas to have two three four five parts per million uh, milligrams per kilogram of uh, lead and so even as a target this is a substantial uh, level but uh, this is represents a significant reduction from previously uh, observed contamination. In terms of house dust levels, uh, the challenge is to get them uh, down to the range of 500 to 1000 milligrams per kilogram. In terms of uh, monitoring the local population, the remedial objectives uh, for children uh, blood lead levels uh, initially was to get uh, less than five of the children over that uh, magic uh, 10 micrograms per deciliter standard, uh, and make sure that we have, in terms of an objective, less than 1% of the children above a 15 microgram uh, per deciliter um, uh, level. In terms of uh, uh, delinking contaminated dust, uh, the mitigation of the local environment, the soils uh, contaminated the town, and some of the actions and activities associated with uh, renovating uh, yards and soil around yards and playgrounds. To reduce the mean house dust lead levels to less than 500 uh, milligrams per kilogram was a remedial objective, and to have a goal of medium yard soil uh, lead levels less than 350 milligrams per kilogram. This is a graphic of what happened after the remediation started uh, in the site and this is house dust uh, lead and this is exposure by year Uh, the years tracked in this graphic are 1974 to 1998 so we have uh, three communities here and this is the geometric mean of the dust lead level here in milligrams per kilogram and this is on a year-by-year basis Um, the idea is to get to this uh, dotted line down here the magic uh, number Uh, of the dust at 500. There are three communities monitored in the green. Here's Pinehurst, uh, in the red Smelterville, and in the blue, the Kellogg-Wardner-Page children. These are small communities. You can see that in terms of some of the house dust uh, lead, uh, uh, house dust lead levels uh, in Smelterville, we're talking about significant concentrations exceeding 1%. You can see that the mitigation activities on the site to remove uh, the sources uh, and the pathways of exposure uh, over time, and this is uh, through the 1970s and then through the 1980s, finally into the 1990s we started seeing uh, a reduction down to these target levels of house dust lead. And so in terms of a a success, in terms of the investment of the resources, to mitigating uh, uh, exposure to the receptors, we definitely saw uh, a reduction in the overall dust lead levels. The question is, do we see a concomitant response in the uh, children's blood lead levels? And you can see in this graphic, which I also have the same sorts of years down here from the 1970s to late 1990s. And here, this is. Um, the uh, blood lead levels and these are uh, the mean blood lead levels in micrograms per deciliter up here at the top it's uh, at 70 and this is down here the last line before the zero line is 10 so this is our target and you can see that in these three communities of Pinehurst, uh, Kellogg-Wardner and Smelterville we started out at significant levels here at 35, here at uh, almost 50, here at almost 70 that over the decades, we were able to reduce these levels. These levels were observed in uh, clinical screening by the local health department, um, such that uh, uh, finally, uh, here in the 1990s, uh, the remedial objectives of less than 10 micrograms per deciliter were observed in the local children. Obviously, the children uh, that grew up at this point in time that were born and uh, raised in this area did have significant levels of uh, lead and lead exposure Uh, some of those uh, children uh, are actually students Uh, i've met uh, two graduate students actually that were uh, part of the lead exposure cohort uh, in the early 1970s what I'm going to do next is uh, show one of my video vignettes. Uh, this particular uh, video is uh, Jerry Cobb, who is uh, one of the health scientists at the Idaho uh, Panhandle Health District. What's interesting about Jerry uh, is uh, that he was born and raised in this area and kind of grew up and uh, grew up with uh, lead and lead mining in this area but then in his adult years became involved uh, as a health scientist uh, for the local health district and has been one of the leads in terms of monitoring this throughout those decades uh, that you saw represented in the data. Uh, In this video, uh, Jerry gives us a very intimate and personal uh, reference in terms of uh, the local history and some of the uh, successes in terms of cleaning up uh, his backyard. If you would, Mike.
1: Hello, my name is Gary Cobb, I'm a Senior Environmental Health Specialist with Panhandle Health District. I've been working on the Bunker Hill Superfund site since 1983, and today I'm going to try and provide you a quick overview of that project. Uh, The Bunker Hill Superfund site actually was created in 1983 when it was listed on the National Priority List. Prior to that listing, however, the Bunker Hill story really began. It began in 1973 with a fire in the baghouse associated with the smelter. The baghouse is a large building that captured fugitive emissions from the plant and filtered them prior to discharge. was so a fire in the baghouse uh, resulting in a need for either closing the plant or uh, bypassing. Uh, the choice is made to bypass and somewhere between 7 and 20 years worth of lead particulate passed up that stack in about eighteen months time. The Bunker Hill site is a 21 square mile site. It's 7 miles long and 3 miles wide. It's the second largest Superfund site in the country and I believe it's probably the largest lead site. The event that occurred in 1973 resulted in air emissions containing between 10 and 12,000 parts per million lead uh, dust in homes and yard soils averaging in the 6 to 8,000 parts range. At present, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency begins being concerned about lead in soils above 400 parts per million in a residential setting. Uh, air emissions right now uh, meet all of the national air quality standards the project began in 1983 as i stated earlier but at that time there was very little direction with superfund it was a brand new program Uh, there was not a lot of guidance at that time which in some instances can be good Uh, we were able to do a number of things um, faster than possibly we would have been Uh, able to do it today. The downside of that, however, was there was not a lot of guidance to rely on from other sites and and take a cue from what had been done elsewhere. The general consensus of opinion was that it was going to take a long time to clean this site up. It was not going to occur quickly. For that reason, Panhandle Health District uh, expressed a concern to the state of Idaho. It does not have primacy in SuperSUN, therefore they had to work on the project under a cooperative agreement with NCA, that public health issues needed to be addressed during the cleanup. It was going to be a long haul, and we knew based on blood lead sampling that had been done back in 73 and '4 and 1975, that there were issues here associated with young children and elevated blood lead. In the 1973-74 period when emissions were so high, the average blood lead level in the town of Snowderville was 65 micrograms per deciliter. For the entire site, it was 40 micrograms per deciliter. That number has subsequently been reduced uh, to 30, then to 25, and in 1991, the uh, Centers for Disease Control reduced the level of concern to 10 micrograms per death for young children and pregnant women. Um, in Kellogg at this time, and actually for the site at this time, we are looking at an average blood lead level of around 4. Uh, national data is hard to compare to a site like this or any site because it is national data and it's collected different than what we do, but for unexposed children, background would be somewhere probably between 2 and 3. So we are now at 4. We've seen blood lead levels drop from that 40 I mentioned earlier to the current level of 4. Our goal at this site is to end with 95% of the children below blood lead 10. That's also the national goal. We program that we recommended, uh, the Silver Valley-led Health Intervention Program was funded. In 1985 it began. Since that time we have been doing very aggressive blood lead uh, screening and follow-up. Each year we hire uh, seven to eight local people. We train them on intervening techniques, send them out into the field. They knock on 1,500 doors roughly in the site and offer blood lead screening services to all children nine months to nine years of age. Any child found with an elevated blood lead uh, is followed up with a nursing home, with a public health nurse visit to that home, uh, and an environmental audit of that property. As part of that process, we question the family um, on all sources of lead, soil, dust, paint, hobby, occupation, recreational activities. Um, It's a very broad-based approach because with lead or any other environmental uh, sampling event and follow-up, you need to not simply hone in on one particular problem or you're likely to miss other factors that can be causing uh, problems as well. Our program runs each summer through the month of July and August. We do it in the hot, dry time of the year. Uh, We knock on uh, approximately 1500 doors, and we've been screening between 350 and 400 children for the last 10 years. Results, again, we're seeing marked improvements. Those improvements have come from a variety of of, uh, activities. They include demolition of the smelter, since 1994, smelter demolition, uh, zinc plant demolition, cadmium plant, phosphate fertilizer plant. All of those uh, demolition projects have essentially eliminated the entire uh, industrial complex, which was approximately 400 acres in size. In addition, we have a 200-acre, 40-foot-high 40 40 central impoundment area, which contains millions of cubic yards of flotation tailings a byproduct of the mill. In addition to the central impoundment area and elimination of the smelter complex, there have been over a million and a half cubic yards of material removed from the Smelterville flats. The Smelterville flats, along with the CIA, uh, continued to plague the community as significant dust sources, uh, and that's the reason they had to be eliminated. The material has been taken up to the central impoundment area where it is now being capped, in fact, as we speak approximately uh, half of that impoundment area is now under 60 mil um, plastic liner and is being covered with clean material. The human health risk assessment that was conducted at this site which is part of the remedial investigation feasibility study process that's required by EPA to uh, address concerns and problems at the Superfund site. Um, it was conducted in the late 1980s. And In 1989 the Human Health Risk Assessment identified yard soils and house dust as the prime concern for young children at this site. Uh, that information and that finding was similar to what was found in 74 and 75. However in the older days the smelter emissions were included in those concerns and were of course uh, Oftentimes, overshadowed the soil and dust issue. So in 1989 it was decided that in order to reduce exposure to children in their homes, something had to be done. This was a public health response. It was not an engineered type response, uh, a typical remedial action. It was done to locate young children and eliminate those sources in their yard and in their homes. To date, we have remediated approximately 1,800 individual properties and we've done in probably in excess of 10 miles of right-of-way. Uh, these are soft-shouldered dirt right-of-ways which add to uh, the dustiness of a community and of the home. Remediation in those yards includes the removal of 12 inches of, up to 12 inches of Soil contaminated soil. The installation of a geofabric as a visual barrier so that one will know uh, where the clean materials that are that were imported to infill that yard and and can possibly contaminated soils begin. Um, the home remediation program is approximately 90% complete, and maybe another. 250 to 300 and possibly up to 400 yards to be done. They're being done by the upstream mining group as part of their requirements under a consent decree that was negotiated with the state and EPA. They remove contaminated soils from up to 200 yards per year. There's also a concern to address young children's homes or a home where an expectant Mother is living. So to complement the yard removal program, there is a high-risk yard removal program such that if you have a child or a pregnant woman in residence, we are able to put that house on a uh, what we call a high-risk risk, and that yard will be done each summer during the construction season. So we do not let um, children reside, young children reside on contaminated property while we work somewhere else. We make sure that we get that in our program. All of those issues, uh, inc- including the, the yard removal, the industrial complex removals, uh, the Snowdell Flats removals, and a very vigorous uh, attempt to get the hillsides revegetated has made a large difference in our blood lead levels, in community-wide yard soil contamination. I would mentioned earlier about yard soils being in the range of seven to 8,000 parts per million in the 70s. Uh, right now we are shooting for and very close to and have reached in some communities a community wide average of 350 parts per million. Our human health risk assessment predicted, predicted that at 350 parts per million for community wide average and house dust below 500 that our remedial action goal associated with blood lead of 95% below 10 would be reached. One of the things that is unique to this site is that we are using barrier and capping techniques to solve these problems. But it's not your typical remediation where materials are simply removed and disposed of somewhere and no matter uh, what happens then in the future the area is clean and people can get on with their lives in a normal manner with regard to excavation and grading community-wide this community is different you can and barriers contamination this area is to death up to six feet there was not enough money there was not enough time and it would have been disrupted to the community to the point where it probably could not have tolerated a six-foot removal. The decision was made based on risk activities and the engineering that was done to utilize caps and barriers up to 12 inches thick. However, if you're going to do that type of remediation, if you're going to bring in simple caps and barriers, especially where they uh, are located in 75 to 80 percent, probably pushing 90% of all of the property in the community and these are private private properties these are individual homes commercial properties public parks and rights-of-ways but there had to be a tremendous effort um, to deal with excavation and grading on into the future. That was dealt with here we call that program the Institutional Controls Program. It was developed by Pan Animal District and is managed by our agency. It is a program that requires all contractors who do excavating and grading in the area to be licensed. It requires permits for all excavation and grading for individuals, and we're talking excavations here greater than one cubic yard, which is roughly a pickup pole. We do have a program called Record of Compliance, however, to encourage individuals who are doing smaller projects but may at the same time penetrate that clean barrier to come in and get a record of compliance and in doing so we make available to them a trailer which we will bring to their property and park for them that will hold up to one cubic yard of material and when it's full we will pick it up and take it away for them and we will bring them one cubic yard of clean material to infill the excavation that that they created. The disposal site that we use is located within the Bunker Hill Superfund site. It's managed by the Institutional Controls Program and it holds all the residential soils that have been removed to date. It's located at the Page 2 treatment plant. It's up on a tailings impoundment that's about 15 to 20 feet above uh, the floodplain. It covers raw location tailings that were running 6 to 7,000 parts lead material bringing in for the most part is cleaner than that and at such time that that topsoil is, is placed it's graded and seeded thus eliminating uh, a potential dust source from those flotation tailings that are underneath them. The ICP uh, is, is a very large program, quite invasive. It's been well accepted by the community. It's been in place for approximately five years. Uh, the program does carry the weight of law to not comply with the ICP as a misdemeanor, to $300 a day fine for each day that the violation is in existence, and six months of jail. We've not had to exercise the enforcement component. We have managed to, for the past five years, deal with it uh, in an educational mode and an assistance mode that uh, is designed to say yes or not no. The success of the ICP is evident in in a number of ways. Uh, Number one, in yards that are not being recontaminated and sampling and and tracking of those properties has shown that it has been effective. But it also works in the arena of conducting commerce. Uh, Silver Mountain, Subway, uh, McDonald's, Motel 8, all have come to this area, located in this area, and conduct business in this area Uh, They have accepted the ICP as uh, uh, an acceptable component of doing business. It has not added a burden to their ability to conduct commerce here, and uh, their compliance is positive that not only uh, can we work with these barriers, but we can be successful in doing so.
0: Jerry Cobb gives us a very personal and professional point of view in terms of uh, the environmental history uh, and focusing on mitigation of uh, childhood blood lead levels in the Bunker Hill site. Uh, He's got a unique perspective, once again, as a person that not only grew up in this but has witnessed uh, not only the economic uh, challenges of mining communities, uh, not dissimilar to many mining communities around the western United States but also the transition from a highly contaminated site to one that is moving forward in terms of uh, remediation and control of the potential uh, release of toxics and lead. The next uh, case study that we'll talk about, actually, is uh, the Berkeley Pit. And as I introduced, this is uh, one of the largest highly contaminated water bodies in the United States. Uh, it comes as an inactive open pit copper mine. It's in Butte, Montana. So in a certain sense, it's just the. Uh, Oh, about a couple hundred miles uh, east of the uh, Bunker Hill site. Uh, again, part of the, the U.S. West mining operations. Um, it was flooded uh, with about 30 billion gallons of acid mine drainage. And so reflecting on the chemistry that we learned about oxidation of these reduced sulfides uh, during mining operations, you can see that, in fact, we have not only the potential for heavy metals uh, uh, designed and suspended in this water but also the very low acidic pH is associated with AMD acid mine drainage or acid rock drainage um, this particular site, to give you an, an idea, by the way, this is the downtown area of Butte, Montana. You can see that this uh, Berkeley Pit, the mining operation, a very deep uh, pit, open pit mine operation, is right on the edge of a, uh, of a town. In a certain sense, when we talk about uh, sources, pathways, receptors, here's some sources, there's obviously some pathways, and the primary one is uh, the drinking water potential for drinking water contamination uh, for the local population. give you an idea, this uh, open pit uh, operation was uh, 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 operating from 1955 to 1982. In uh, 1982, the pit did close. Uh, the owners shut down the pumps. Uh, when you're operating below the water table, Uh, you have to have active pumping, whether it's a mine shaft or uh, an open pit mine, you have to have active pumping to keep the water out. Uh, What you're creating is a hole that's below uh, the uh, regional water level, and you can kind of see that here in this graphic. This is a cross-section of the pit. You can see that the water table is, again, uh, higher than the bottom of the pit, and so there is a tendency for water to rush in uh, over time. Uh, that water because it is associated with uh, oxidizing mineral sulfides there uh, can in fact be acid rock drainage and so uh, this particular area and you can't pick it up too well on on this photo but you can see the network of mine shafts that are dropping down for this area these are again copper mining operations so beyond the surface pit operation uh, there is uh, hundreds if not thousands of miles of uh, uh, um, Uh, these uh, mine shafts uh, in this particular area not necessarily directly associated with this mine operation but with other nearby operations Uh, so they go down and over and they do have the ability once below the water table to be able to be flooded From 1982, when the pit closed until 1996, uh, about six million gallons of water entered the pit every day. And this happened because of runoff uh, streams that were uh, in the area that were emptying uh, into this uh, pit. Um, The surface water, uh, in terms of just mitigating and and managing the site, uh, the uh, managing engineers and scientists decided we need to divert any sort of aerial water. So the surface water has been diverted, and the water level has been halved to about 3 million gallons per day, and that's just by runoff associated with precipitation, snow melt, and also the infiltration from groundwater uh, coming through the sides of the pit. Uh, The major concern that the pit managers have in terms of control remediation and uh, trying to maintain uh, and contain uh, the hazardous materials in the pit is that it's predicted in 2015 uh, to actually be at the water table level such that uh, the ability to backflow or backflush into the local water supply, drinking water supply, uh, will become a reality. And so in a certain sense the clock is ticking on this site in terms of allowing it to continuously fill as it has over the past couple of decades the water in the berkeley pit is uh, well known to be highly toxic uh, to waterfowl there's been some uh, recitations and observations uh, historically such as the one in 1995 uh, when 342 snow geese uh, overnighted there during a, uh, a winter storm uh, landing on this water that was uh, below pH 3 uh, they were killed by the water uh, fairly tragic uh, uh, wildlife incident it's recounted in one of the stories uh, that uh, are on uh, the uh, course website and there's been a number of observations, uh, environmental groups, mining groups, remembering that Berkeley Pitt is located in Butte, Montana, which is a mining town. Mining has been a part of the local economy for 100 years. Uh, in a certain sense, this is not an anti-mining community. Uh, and there's a high degree of respect for the challenges associated with mining and some of the risks associated with mining operations. What you find if you analyze the Berkeley Pit is that the rocks that form the walls of this Berkeley Pit are interconnected with the various mine workings and uh, the, the highly mineralized substrates. And so in a certain sense, there's conduit uh, a conduit allowing for oxygen to oxidize uh, the water that's in the groundwater oxidize the water that can collect in these mine shafts, uh, allowing for acid rock drainage to develop. These naturally occurring geochemical reactions involved, uh, as, as we uh, described here before, uh, oxidation, leaching, dissolution of the sulfide minerals, and these cause the water to become highly contaminated with various heavy metals, obviously in this case, uh, high mutant, uh, amount of uh, copper. Uh, There is the formation of acid and the the lowering of pH. Uh, And again, we've said even in some contaminated ARD sites, uh, we can have pHs in surface water that are below pH zero. They're actually negative pHs. They're so so acidic. Uh, As well, there's a formation of sulfate and iron sulfate. And so we can have in high iron zones, and this isn't a particularly high iron zone, but these uh, brilliant red, orange, ochre type colors. If we look at the berkeley Pit water chemistry, you can see that there is uh, large parts per million uh, milligrams per liter of aluminum, copper, uh, zinc, sulfate. Uh, the total dissolved solids is about 13,000 milligrams uh, per liter, about 1.3%. It's a highly oxidizing environment. The uh, EH, the redox potential, is 405 millivolts. And so this is a very oxidized uh, water. Uh, what's remarkable is the pH of this substantial water body is 2.85, so we have a pH below 3. This is a highly acidic uh, pH uh, that can dissolve even the rock around uh, the base. What we're going to do is have the next presentation. Uh, this is an opportunistic uh, presentation by Carl Lannis, who I met uh, He's a local uh, member of the Butte community uh, who actually worked uh, in the mines uh, at the Berkeley Pit uh, when it was still in operation. So Mike, if we can have that video.
2: Berkeley Pit here. Uh, The Berkeley Pit uh, is actually a mile deep, uh, if you were able to take all the water out of it. You could actually see all the way down uh, a full mile. Uh, The tiers in here, the trucks used to uh, drive around the tiers on the outside, just like little roadways going all the way down. And uh, during the, the deepest operations of the pit itself, the trucks would take approximately three hours just to climb out from the bottom of the pit. Uh, they would take the ore that they had actually dug with the electric cranes, put them in the electric trucks, which are just uh, big, humongous trucks. I don't know if you recall exactly. I think they, uh, each one hold uh, like five to six tons. Uh, they'd come up the perimeters and finally get to the operations in the back here. Uh, this is now called uh, the Montana Resources. Uh, that was originally uh, owned by the Anaconda Company. Uh, once the trucks got to the top, they would dump in a big gyroscopic uh, sort of a crusher the crusher would uh, then crush all the ore and the loose ore that was around here and uh, some of it was uh... you know you'd get some chunks that were nearly half the size of the truck they'd go in these uh, big crushers and from there they'd keep crushing it down into little smaller bits until it could actually go into what they called rod mills and ball mills uh... through the whole entire operation they added water and uh, different uh, solvents and stuff to uh... To actually uh, uh, dissolve and, and crush and sort of grind down the material uh, from there uh, then they would take it and uh, flotation uh, take off the, uh, the top surfaces of it the, the contaminants uh, and then the stuff that was left over with a heavier ore type material was uh, put in railroad cars, and then from the railroad cars it was transferred to Anaconda, Montana, which is about 20 miles to the west of Butte here, Uh, and then it was smelted Uh, from there. It was dried out and then smelted in those operations. Uh, A few further notes on the area here is the big head frames everywhere. You see a head frame on the horizon. Uh, You'll see shafts that are sunk down inside the earth and uh, some of those go as far as two miles deep. The ones that were uh, uh, sunk, uh, to me they're uncountable. I'm, I'm gonna say that there's at least 60 to 70 shafts, individual shafts that were sunk.
3: Uh,
2: once they start digging down, they find the uh, veins of ore, the copper ore, and uh, then they start spreading out, just like a bunch of fingers, and they'll, they'll go every direction. So there's areas here in, in the Butte area that have got shafts that are dug on the perimeter, probably, uh, I'm going to say, two to three miles from the center of the shaft. And they go down, uh, they go down a mile, two miles, depending on uh, where the ore was. Uh, one of the problems with the shutdown of the operation uh, ARCO took over the operations in uh, 1976 and uh, from there on they sort of started phasing out the projects and uh, by 1980 the Anaconda smelter itself was actually shut down entirely. Uh, They still mined the products here and still shipped them out and uh, now towards this last phase in these last uh, probably five or six years we have problems with the contaminants because what they did was they took the mine shafts and the mine shafts that were uh, were sunk started filling up with water because they weren't going to foot the bill to have the electricity to pump the water out of these mine shafts so in turn as the mine shafts filled up with water it had nowhere to go so now what's happening is it's all traveling back down inside the pit and the pit right now is i'm going to say it's approximately half full But as you you realize, as it comes up further, it's going to slow down because the pit is actually wider. Um, So now the contaminants that they have and the problems they have, uh, the groundwater is is becoming contaminated. Uh, There's a small creek that they used to dump into named Silver Bowl Creek. Silver Bowl Uh, was really heavy metal uh, content in it. Uh, That traveled west on towards Missoula and uh arco actually had to do a cleanup effort here in this probably this last decade and they took the uh they took the whole area and attempted to reclaim it and then from the reclamation they created little dams and little streams a little aquifer waterfalls uh, and they even attempted to put fish in them Uh, it hasn't been overly successful but it was a real good attempt on the part of the uh, uh, arco company to do some reclamation project. Uh, The the cost was insorbent. Uh, You know, you're talking tens of millions of dollars uh, just to to attempt to reclaim this area. Uh, They've been somewhat successful, but uh, there's still a lot more they have to go. Uh, But anyway, the operations here, uh, they were dirty and wet, and I didn't like it.
0: Well, that gives you a little vignette and uh, a a very personal uh, history, personal account uh, by by a local community member that actually did have the experience of uh, working in this mine and then watching it uh, fill over the subsequent decades. Our next uh, vignette, our next case study is going to be the African uh, Explosives uh, Company uh, fire in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, this happened uh, in uh, December 1995. I can read an uh, uh, Associated Press report here, give you some background. A uh, cloud of poisonous sulfur and sulfur dioxide hangs over the uh, Makassar Township, a residential area approximately 40 miles northeast of Cape Town, South Africa, Sunday, December 17th, 1995. Poison gas started to leak uh, after fire broke out in storage areas of this particular chemical plant. Thousands of people uh, were evacuated from the area, and you can kind of see the plume, the cloud, that's uh, actually traveling across the countryside from this fire. Uh, This is an evening photograph, and again, from the AP, colors of uh, burning sulfur and sulfur dioxide glow in the midnight sky over the township. At least 100 people were injured and two deaths uh, were reported. And so this is pretty significant. It's a fairly toxic gas in high concentration. Anyone that has ever uh, hiked near a volcano uh, knows that these sulfur fumes are particularly uh, potent and uh, a tremendous amount of discomfort. Uh, Sulfur dioxide on contact with uh, the water that's in your lungs and uh, pulmonary linings uh, will produce sulfur dioxide and the associated respiratory failure and tissue damage. Uh, This particular fire uh, started with uh, an industrial pile of elemental sulfur. Uh, The African Explosives Company was one of the manufacturers of various uh, uh, explosives like nitroglycerin uh, and gunpowder that were associated with uh, the uh, operations of many mining uh, areas, uh, mining operations in Africa, whether it be the metal mines, uh, the various uh, ore mines, uh, and even the diamond mines uh, in, in Africa. Uh, As I said, the contact of these fumes uh, produces sulfuric acid. Uh, It's an irritant at a minimum, but it can damage respiratory membranes and your ability to breathe. Um, There's also an impact when uh, these chemicals interact with environmental water in terms of uh, decreasing uh, the pH. In the area nearby, there was a large tract of land and a shallow aquifer that was contaminated with various sulfur compounds, including sulfate uh, with a very low pH. Uh, The site management for the site damaged by the fire was actually uh, uh, complicated by the nearby presence of some lands that were contaminated during uh, large-scale explosives production. And so uh, you not only had the, uh, the dangers, the environmental chemical dangers, associated with these low pH waters uh, in a shallow aquifer system, but you also had the potential for uh, mismanaged, historically buried uh, explosives uh, uh, that uh, perhaps uh, presented a challenge to the people managing uh, this particular site. Uh, the final case presentation uh, was by a local professor uh, this is during a site visit I had to Cape Town South Africa uh, with uh, some investigators uh, we were taken out to the site and given a tour and Professor Martin Frey from the University of Cape Town and also from the University of Stellenbach uh, he's a leading expert in the area and one of the major scientists investigating environmental impacts in this area of South Africa
3: Nitroglycerine, for a hundred years since Cecil Rhodes founded this uh, uh, explosives plant, mainly for the mines up in Johannesburg They've been making and occasionally spilling nitroglycerine and other explosives mostly over in those trees there where there are a whole lot of old storage bunkers The difficulty in releasing all of this area for urban development which is the plan, is they can't even get environmental specialists like Ted in there to take samples in case they get blown up, because they're not sure whether there's a risk or not. So they've even used remote controlled sampling devices to take the first sample, and they have to go in there very gingerly, uh, sort of one step at a time. Uh, Eventually, people will be living there and playing sports and doing all sorts of things but it's going to be a very long process. This is probably one of the most spectacular environmental cleanup operations anywhere in the world in terms of the diversity of chemicals and the risks and also the potential in terms of the, the enormous value that you can add to the land by cleaning it up. So, it's not surprising that we've already had three MSC species out of it and there are probably many more to come but this sulfur dump area is probably the, the main focus of interest although over there you can see what is known as the dead tree area there's still some controversy as to whether it's the salinity in the groundwater from the pollution uh, coupled with natural salinity in this low-lying area um, but also waterlogging during the winter months because of changes in the hydrology from the urban development up there which have caused a lot of those eucalyptus trees to die back
0: Well, that gives us uh, at least three uh, case studies uh, to kind of uh, uh, perhaps give you some introduction to the size, scope, and diversity of of the various challenges that we have in, in pretty diverse parts of the world. Next time, what we're going to do is take a look uh, also at a few inorganics. Uh, We'll continue with our discussion of mining, mining impacts. Uh, Mining is by its nature uh, a fairly hazardous uh, uh, operation. We'll talk about what happens when things go particularly bad in terms of environmental impacts. We'll also start uh, an introductory sequence about uh, the environmental toxicology and uh, relative toxicological risks of radionuclides and talk about some contaminated sites associated with nuclear fission products. Until that time, we'll see you. Thanks.